Ciao, welcome to the Toast of the Wild East, podcast for ambitious Toastmasters looking for ways to raise their game. In today's episode, look and look forward to hearing some nuggets of wisdom from Mel Kelly, IT professional, Toastmasters champion turned stand-up comedian. We will talk about Mel's new book, about finding true love, about how even experienced Toastmasters can push themselves to keep improving, and how stand-up comedy can help you improve crowd control during your business presentations. I mean, wow, I never knew you needed crowd control in business presentations. So get comfortable, or not if you're listening to this on the go, either way, enjoy. Mel, it's great to have you here. Hi, Lucas, how are you doing? Are you well, enjoying today? All good things. One more thing, Mel, I'm going to mention about you is that you're a published author of a new book. A published author, absolutely, but not just of one book, but of two books. Okay. Uh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm a multiple, multiple author. Please get it right, Lucas. Come on. <laughs> okay. So now you're a published author of a new book. Top tips for dating disasters in Germany, which our listeners can get on Amazon. There's also one more that you published sometime in the past, right? That's correct. Yes. How was the one called? That was called Born in Ireland, Made in Germany. Okay, so now I can see when it comes to inspiration. You're quite drawing from your German experience. I wanted to ask you, how does Germany inspire you? Well, I came to Germany a while ago, so 2003. And, well, when I first came to Germany, I was expecting some things to be different. And they were. Some things were different to Ireland. However, there was a lot more things that were different than I expected. And so in those first couple of years, I was most of my time, I was just noticing all these cultural differences between the way things are done here, how the people operate here, how certain things are done. And you arrived to Germany because you got a job there. I can imagine that there were many differences that you managed to spot over time. But what was the first or what was the biggest difference that you spotted as a guy coming from Ireland to work in Munich, Germany? Well, the, one of the first things actually I noticed was the very first evening I arrived, I thought I was in the train station and in the city center after coming in from the airport, I noticed all these escalators that weren't working. I thought, my goodness, I thought Germany was the home of efficiency. And I thought, and I thought, oh my goodness, all these escalators that are not working. <laughs> Little did I realize that these were automated escalators and you had to stand on them to actually get them moving. So I found that out after a short while. <laughs> that was one of, the, one of the first differences I noticed when I arrived. So you only confirmed that indeed Germany was the home of efficiency. <laughs> yes. However, in your last book, Top Tips for Dating Disasters in Germany, you're not dealing that much about general cultural differences. You're dealing more with challenges of an Irish man who moved to Germany and there he's trying to find true love. Can I call it like that? True love, yes. The love, you know, trying to look for the love of my life. Yes, yeah, so what was the first thing that he spotted that was different about German women? What was the difference there? Well, the, the thing is, the thing is, is that what I found was that I was expecting, you know, this is when I was leaving Ireland, I was wondering, are, you know, women in Ireland, 
are women the same as the women in Ireland? Are, are women different? Are, when you go to a different country, are the women so much different? Are they exotic? Are they this? Are they that? Do they operate in a different way? Like, are the women in Czech so much different to the women in Prague, to the women in Munich, to the women in Spain? You know, all these ideas were going through my head. Why are the women so different? And I, at the start, I probably thought, oh, these are going to be so different. But then actually over time, I realized, no, actually, they're yeah, women. <laughs> women are women you know and the problems I had with women you know that in terms of you know, looking for date and finding a date finding a love uh, I had the same problems in Germany as I had in Ireland so it was it was I found that the women were quite universal to be honest with you hmm interesting well you also do stand-up comedy right and I think that from your book I have a really good sense that it's written in this playful and jokeful style yes yes that's and so someone can be reading that book just for entertainment, but I actually think that one could also read it as dating advice because in the book you're describing your journey and actually you're making discoveries about life and about women and I think they're quite valid discoveries. <laughs> so I was wondering, while you're writing it, was it your intention that to have a funny book that would actually help men understand women I would, I would say it's more the unintended side effect i mean if if people feel that it's going to help them on their journey to understand women i well that's that's fantastic but that, that's not really the purpose of the book the book is, is just more of a humorous story a couple of my adventures ups downs ins and outs some of them are, are fully true some of them are yeah well it's a humor book so I'm, i i allow myself a little bit of license to uh, to 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 uh, a bit of license with the truth let's put it that way well, because it's not a it's not an autobiography, it's not a documentary, it's a it's a humor book. So but most of the stories are quite true. Most of the stories are based in reality and uh, it, it's yeah. Well, of course, we will not go into the details of describing what exactly are the contents of the book. But if you could summarize it in two or three sentences for people to imagine what's going on there, would you be able to do that? Yeah, I suppose it would be. And the thing is, it, it, the book is, is about my adventures in Germany, but really it, it, the book is not so much about cultural difference. It's more about men-women differences. So it's actually something that's applicable, I think, in most, mo most places, you know. So there is a small amount of German context to some of the stories because most of them actually happened here. So, but it's not really, you don't, yeah, you could be living elsewhere and find a story relevant. What I would say, the the... Three sentences to describe the book. Guy looking for love. Guy not, not succeeding looking for love again and again and again. Finally figuring out how to do a little bit better than, than he was at the start. Meets the girl and then has problems, problems, problems there in a relationship, but somehow finds his way to have a happy relationship. Yeah, and definitely a lot of fun situations along the way. Did you find, sorry, Lucas, did you find tips that are useful for you? Of course. <laughs> Definitely. Which ones? Which ones? So I have to tell you that you were one of my Toastmasters childhood heroes. <laughs> <laughs> but I never knew that you would also be my dating guru. <laughs> so can you, any, any tips stand out for you that you feel is relevant? Yeah, definitely. So for example, about the insight. Of course, I heard before that it's important that man takes good care of himself, not just what he looks in the face, but also how well he dresses and how, how well he is groomed. And in your book, 
you put it in a sentence which says something like that a man should look like in a way that if the woman would be walking next to him, that she would not be ashamed of him, that he should not, not he should not look as bad as to embarrass her when she would be walking next to him. Yes. And and I, I gave it some thought and I said, well, actually, that's true. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I might say, I don't care about the way I look, right? But that's really selfish because if I'd be walking next to the woman or a girl outside, I'd be looking horrible. She would be looking horrible walking next to me. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, this is making sense. Yeah, there's truisms in there. There's truisms in there, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, and I can imagine that as you well went along that journey that you made a lot of discoveries for yourself. What would it be if you were supposed to give an advice to your 20 years younger self? What would be the top thing that you would highlight from the journey or the key learning or the key tip? The biggest piece of advice was is actually is to watch Sex in the City. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've got to that chapter yet, but it's to watch Sex. There's a chapter on that, but it's to watch Sex in the City. And the reason being is not that it's such a brilliant piece of television or anything like that. It's not that, but it's about four women and their journey in New York and their journey on the dating scene. And it, it's more about getting the female perspective on things. Now, of course, these are not real characters, not real people, but it's actually about just looking at the world from another point of view. And that's what that was a tip I got actually many, many years ago. Watch Sex and the City. So I, I actually co I covered that in the book. And it's, it's an interesting one was that actually it's just about seeing the world from somebody else's point of view. We all think that well, not we all think. Well, I used to think that the way I saw the world was how everybody else sees the world. And the reality being is it's not quite the case. <laughs> <laughs> there are many many different perspectives on the same thing and they're all equally valid yeah that's true well now lucas let me qualify like i mean let me qualify all of this this is a humor book here i'm not putting myself up here as any as any sort of dating guru or dating coach <laughs> uh, absolutely not please be careful with this this is just my humble my humble opinion okay, <laughs> uh, okay. This, this, this is not based on any qualifications or any uh, serious, credible or whatever background on this sort of stuff, you know. So please don't be putting me up there as an expert. <laughs> okay. And so that's a fair disclaimer, right? Because, yeah. 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 Okay. After listening to this podcast, nobody can claim their money back for <laughs> from Mel's book. It, it is a humor book. It, it is a humor book. I'm not putting myself up there as a scientist or in any or authority in any shape or form on this on this type of material. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of this topic, you know what? Watching your work for the past couple of years and also in Toastmasters, I noticed that the whole men-women relationship is something that inspires you. And for example, the speech in 2013 at the district conference in Budapest that made you a district humorous speech winner, it was again speaking about this topic. And it, I still have this vivid mental image of you standing on the stage, spreading your hands, waiting for a lightning to strike or something like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Do you think you would be able to describe it for those who were not there to see it? <laughs> and also to illustrate this whole idea how it came to your mind because 
it's something that I found really, really cool. Okay, well, cool, cool. Yeah, so was it, that was a speech. It was based on that. That speech actually has made it into the book. <clears throat> so that, that takes up a couple of chapters in the book. So I talk about that, obviously. It's in, in Toastmasters, I did it in speech form. And in the book, it's in written form. And it, what's interesting is the written form is, is obviously, uh, well, obviously not obviously, but it's a bit different to how, how you write is a bit different to how you will do it for a, a speech. So this kind of interesting process. And so the point being is, is uh, this, that, that speech was based on, on, on a true story where I was on a date and I embarrassed myself greatly. And it's just like, going, oh, my goodness, I'm waiting for, you know, waiting for, as the expression goes, to, for God to strike me down and God to strike me down. And so I just then put my hands out and look up to the sky and wait for God to strike me down. And of course, God didn't strike me down, but that was the, the piece that I have on, on, on stage and in a when you do that on stage, it can be quite dramatic and quite, it can be, have a quite an effect. <laughs> and as I was going through the contest rounds, it was somebody suggested that to me. And then I tried it out and then they, somebody else suggested, why not make it a bit shorter, maybe make it a bit longer, maybe do it once, maybe do it twice, maybe. And so there's a whole fine tuning into a, into, let's say, it's a joke, a body language joke, if you want, for a better way of putting it, or if you want, for a better way of putting it. And it was then refined over three or four speeches to, to try and get the, the maximum effect, the maximum humorous effect out of it. So physical comedy combined with a bit of timing and a bit of repetition and fine tuning. And yeah, that's then, as you saw it then in Budapest, you saw then the final product of that. Yeah. So I can imagine it was, it had to be quite a journey and that you had to do quite a lot of work on polishing the speech and making it better from round to round. And I also know this was not your first attempt at the text title. So you had a couple of more attempts. Yeah, yeah. I'd been at the district level quite a few times in the other categories and I'd done quite done well or quite well. But I'd been, I'd been I think, four times previously to district level in, in the humor speech. I'd been four times previously and four times unceremoniously uh, went home with nothing to show for it <laughs> so no place on the podium no prize no first second or third the, the previous four times so it was over the previous seven years and that didn't include the times when I didn't make it to district so it was a couple of times along the way so I'd done seven years in a row the time in Budapest was my seventh year in a row and it was yeah it was qu quite a journey because it was like oh my goodness <laughs> This is not. This is kind of happening for me. It's kind of working for me, for me, but it's not really happening the way I would like it to work, you know. And yeah, so it was, it was quite interesting. And what was one of the basically it was like I was on this journey, and the speeches were getting a little bit better, a little bit better, and they were kind of getting to district, but they weren't doing so well at district in this this humor speech contest. And it was my seventh year, and you know, and I, I actually said it to one of my club members. I said, you know six years of doing this and six years, you know, not, not landing a place, you know, is, uh, you know, should I keep going or should I stop? And, and they said, well, you know, six years, maybe it's a sign. <laughs> a sign to stop. <laughs> and so I thought, no, I'm not stopping it. I, I'm not stopping it. It only made me more determined, you know? And so yeah, and that, that was the seventh year that made me more determined to try again because I was, I was going with the mindset is it's not so much about, you know, the winning or the losing. It's, it's what can I learn from this process? And, you know, I was learning a lot from the process and obviously I wasn't quite 
yeah, cleaning up or doing really, really well. When it's, I, I just had the mindset, I have a lot to learn here. And, uh, you know, I'm not there yet. And so there's a lot of, a lot of room for learning and improvement. So let's keep on that journey. And that's, if this takes me 30 years or 40 years, so be it. As it, as it turned out, it took me seven years to, to, to land a place on the podium. And in, in Budapest, I was lucky enough that I landed first place. That was very nice. Yeah. So when you're saying it was a seven-year journey, how, how was it? Could you observe any changes on yourself over the time in and out of Toastmasters as you were progressing? Because I imagine... You know, you are not making progress just within the seven-minute segments when you were competing in speeches. Is that right? No, no, of course, of course. I mean, I was starting to speak more outside Toastmasters. And it was like what happened, I think, that year, there was a couple of changes happened, I think, what that, that seventh year when I was doing the contest. I think I had an internal change. And I just, I, I, I don't know, maybe I, part of me just said, look, relax don't worry about winning or losing just do your best and it's very very easy to say that but but actually somehow that sunk in and i was more worried about trying to do my best on the day today rather than worrying about winning or losing and i just thought look if i can go in there do my best no matter if it's terrible if, if it's terrible it's terrible if it's good it's good but if it's my best i can do today i'll be happy with myself and that that philosophy for somehow that reasoning somehow worked for me on that particular weekend because it was a semi-final the day before and it was a final on that day on the Saturday and somehow I was just so much more relaxed than I had been in previous years and yeah and and, and through the, the sort of letting go of the pressure to win but just sort of you know obviously you don't go there and just want to do be completely you know not do your do your give it some effort I, I said I'll go there and do my best and hopefully my best is good enough and if it's not good enough so be it and I was lucky enough then I, I gave my best and my big my best was yes yeah, somehow it, it went well in semi-finals it went even better in the finals and it was it was fantastic so that was a change there an internal change was just letting go rather than worrying about the external of the winning or the losing or what do the judges think or what does the audience think but just to move to the internal and just say well I'll do my best and, and hopefully it's good. I wonder, would you be able to pinpoint what enabled that internal change? Because back in the day, before I took district officer roles, I was competing too. And of course, like, you know, all these matadors would give this advice, you know, don't think about the winning, just enjoy giving speeches or the speech. But I knew that was the right way to think about it. I knew it was a valid piece of advice, but I couldn't, you know, just tell myself not to think about winning. So can you think of something that enabled you that change of perspective? Yeah, yeah, I think it was experience, experience of defeat. <laughs> experience of defeat, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, experience of defeat and getting kicked around. And you... Yeah, that's the way I, for me anyway, it seems to be the thing, because once you get kicked around often enough, then you stop caring as much because then what, you know, you're not as afraid as much. So like, you know, you give a speech and you want to win in a, in a contest and you want to win and then you don't win. That feels terrible. But uh, and you think you should have won or you think you've done your best and maybe you won. Maybe maybe you should have won. Maybe you shouldn't have won. It doesn't really matter. But you gave your best and you didn't. Well, that happens a few times. Mm -hmm. You kind of get used to it. <laughs> you kind of get used to that pain. 
And then you realize the pain won't kill you. It's not very pleasant, but it won't kill you. And then as you kind of go, right, okay. And then with experience for me, it was going, right, well, I've tried that approach and that approach and that approach, and that really wasn't working for me. So let's try a different approach. <laughs> and the different approach is we'll stop worrying about it as much and, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So that kind of like, I would say, being dealing with the feet and sucking it up and trying to learn from it. Mm-hmm. Probably the best way it would be where I would purpose to summarize it. I think that's a really good learning just to realize that in order to get relaxed about achieving or not achieving something, which is really, it's really helpful to fail enough times that you stop being worried about it uh, altogether. You can just focus on the performance. Exactly. Were you then able to apply this learning in other spheres of life, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. So because what happened was then the next phase, the next phase of my comedic or humorous journey was actually after Budapest. And somebody said to me, somebody said to me, said, so what's your next, what, what next, what's the next dream? What's the next vision? What's the next, you've climbed the mountain. <laughs> what's the next mountain you want to climb? I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, climb the mountain. Give me a red break. <laughs> so you finally win this with context that you don't even get a short break. It's uh, not, not enough. Yeah, you know, I've only spent seven years trying to do it, you know, I mean, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and somebody straight away goes, so what, what, what next? <laughs> and so the, 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 the thing was, though, because I was all so excited and so high, whatever, then it slipped out of my mind about uh, stand up comedy. And it was one of those t- moments where you go, oh, my, my, my mouth is quicker than my brain here. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I said, because, you know, I was afraid of speaking and afraid of doing these things and all the fears and standing on these big stages. But my bigger, bigger fear was actually stand up comedy. And so I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So but it was like suddenly after winning the contest, I thought, well, if I could do that, maybe I could do comedy. And so I had let this slip out. Oh, stand up comedy. And then I said, no, 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 I can't do stand up comedy. But there was somebody who was standing there in the group and they said, well, why can't you do stand up comedy? And I went, because I'm too old. Okay. And so I was, whatever, I was in my early 40s at the time. And somebody said to me, she said to me, says, yeah, but I started comedy when I was 77. Wow. And I've done 77 gigs since I was 77. It's Julie Kurt. And I was like, oh, there goes my old age excuse. And then it's like, oh, but then, you know, all I had then was left was fear, fear and laziness as my, my excuses. <laughs> and I thought, okay, if Julie Kurtz can start doing comedy at 77, I certainly can start to do comedy at least once. I can try this out. Right. And that was the, that was the start of the next journey. So while I, while I stayed at Toastmasters and continued on giving speeches and competing and all that good stuff in Toastmasters, I also then started on the comedy journey. And that was applying the lessons I had learned from Toastmasters um, outside outside of Toastmasters in, in the, the comedy world. I was also planning in other areas as well in the corporate world and stuff like that. But that was the one that yeah sticks out was that the, the next big step was the, the, the comedy world. Well, I imagine that in the world of stand-up comedy, you get kicked around a lot more than in Toastmasters. I think Toastmasters are really nice. How are the people in the clubs? <laughs> Yes, Toastmasters is such a nice, loving, supportive environment. Comedy is, by comparison, is you get kicked around an awful lot more. 
you don't have to wait once a year for district contest or for contest to get kicked around like in Toastmasters. You get kicked around every night you go out. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. Much bigger bang for the buck or more kicking around. Yeah, for the buck. yeah. So this is this is the comedy world, and you get used to actually. Then it's 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 quite interesting because you're there, you're trying to do your routine, you do your set, you're trying to make people laugh, and you have these great ideas why people should laugh at your material, and mm. then they don't. Or maybe they do, or maybe they don't. But when they do, it feels great. When they don't, it's very disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> and then you kind of have to figure out, well, is it your material is not good enough? Or are you not delivering well enough? Or it's not appropriate for this audience? Or, mm-hmm. or, or where is the problem? You know, or just chop it and, and, and go on to something else. Yeah. But the feedback in comedy is, is, is immediate. So either they, they like or they don't like. And, and you find out very quickly. And it's, it's a very interesting challenge. Yeah. You get kicked around a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I, I know for me, like I was probably doing Toastmasters, I don't know, nine or 10 years mm-hmm. before I started doing comedy. And I wouldn't have been able to withstand the kicking around of comedy <laughs> without nine or 10 years of Toastmasters. <laughs> so the Toastmasters had built me up, built up the, the speaking muscle, the, the confidence muscle or whatever you want to call it, the, all that good stuff. The ability to learn, I would say, and take feedback. I had built up all those great things. And then, so by the time I started doing comedy, I needed a lot of those things on steroids. But but before Toastmasters, I would just have tried comedy and I would have been completely, uh, got kicked around. I would have went home crying. <laughs> <laughs> it, it still didn't stop me from going home crying, but it probably wouldn't have come back. Wow. So, yeah, that's probably the difference. So because of my, my Toastmasters experience, I was able to come back and try and figure out how to improve things. I just imagine you walking in the street of Munich in the middle of the night crying after your stand-up comedy gig. <laughs> I come home, I tell my girlfriend about how badly the gig went, and she's like, yeah, but it's only a gig. What would you relax? I'm like, no, you don't understand. They didn't laugh at my brilliant. They didn't laugh at my jokes. You don't realize how good my jokes are. They didn't laugh. And she's like, yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> To people who are not, to people who are not, to people who are non-comics, they don't understand the pain that we go through. They just go, whatever, shut up, get over yourself. <laughs> I'm wondering now, from the creative point of view, if you have a different process for creating your Toastmaster speeches from creating your comedy sets. By the way, how long are your sets? Five minutes, ten minutes? It can depend. It's some the normal ones are five to seven minutes, but. It can be 20 minutes, it can be an hour, you know, depending on the depending on the show. Okay, so let's say the standard ones are comparable in length to those Toastmaster okay. speeches, five to seven minutes. Um, how is it how is it different from a creative point of view, speeches versus stand-up? How is it different? Well, I suppose that well the point is what's the purpose? And you know, Toastmasters were very heavy on the purpose is to convey a message. At least if it's a contest speech or an informational, it's some, somehow to persuade the audience to 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 do something or to think something. So, an inspirational speech or a persuasive speech would be the main categories of the the Toastmaster speeches. So you're kind of your your focus is on a message. What's my message I'm trying to deliver? Okay, and does everything in my speech for, support that message? Okay, now. In comedy, there's no, no, not necessarily a message. <laughs> Normally, there's not a message. 
And sometimes if you put a message in there, you annoy people because like we're here to be entertained, not to have a kind of message. And so comedy can be quite different. It can be one liners. It can be short little stories. It can be short little jokes, short little stories. Some of them can be related. Some of them are unrelated. Uh, some of them could be about five different topics in five minutes, or it could be all on the same topic, but it, it's, you're not, you're not delivering a message. Okay. That's one form. Now there is comedy that does deliver a message as well. And that's fine too. There's comedy that does political satire, there's, you know, satire, of, you know, social critique or political critique or whatever. So, or there is, there is, you know, comedy that does deliver a message as well, but most of the mess most of the comedy is yeah that's probably how it differs where you're trying to deliver jokes and laughs rather than deliver a message would be the biggest difference between Toastmasters and comedy okay so i think that clearly describes the difference of the intent and how about the process they have so imagine you know that next week now it's saturday imagine next week on saturday you have a stand-up gig how would your preparation for it be different from your preparation for a Toastmaster speech? Well, the, prepar the preparation is different in, in that for me, I would say it's easier to give a speech from zero, building a new speech uh, at this stage. But I've been around Toastmasters a lot longer. So and the thing is, is with a Toastmaster speech, you know, just needs a message, a couple of supporting stories it's you know nice intro nice ending and and so since i've been doing that for quite a long time to to prepare that from zero i mean it's still work you know it'll take a couple of hours maybe it'll take more than a couple of hours it'll depend on, on how important that speech is but if it's a speech for the club i'm just trying out a new idea this is something i could prepare in an hour or two so for example i have a speech on monday and i will do it on monday in german on a wednesday i will do it again in english as an example so that's a new it's a new speech idea i'll try it out i'll do it once i'll do it twice and now that's a speech now the thing is is all you're hoping for in a speech is that the audience doesn't fall asleep that they somehow listen to you and they somehow absorb your message that you're trying to deliver okay the challenge then with comedy i would say the bar is higher because you're trying to make the audience laugh now if you speak for seven minutes and they laugh once or zero times, well, you haven't really succeeded in your goal. <laughs> so what you have to try and do is you have to figure out how can I make them like laugh more often. Now, some people want to get this, this, this thing about laughs per minute. Some, some comics are very hot. This is very important. They want to get as many laughs per minute. And others, other comics are more, are more interested in telling a long story, maybe with a big laugh at the end of the long story. Okay. So for me, then it's like, okay, if I'm doing a comedy bit and I want to get laughs and it's completely from zero, this is actually a very, very difficult thing to do. So what I would do is I won't start from zero, but what I will do is I'll start with some bits, as we call them, like little section bits and that I have done before that I know the audience is generally laugh at. I will then let's say one or two minutes of that. Like, then I, like Melkely best of. Yeah, no, well, not quite. If I wanted new material, I might do one or two best of, right? Or, you know, one or two minutes of best of. Then I'll do one or two minutes of new material. Then I'll do one or two minutes of best of again. Then one or two minutes of new material. And then one or two minutes of, you know, so I'll, I'll mix it. I'll layer it that way. Okay. That's the way I do it. Now, 
other people do it differently. Some people would be brave enough to go on and do five or seven minutes completely from scratch. And they can, you know, have the comedy genius to come up with five or seven new minutes like that. And it can be very, very funny and, and actually quite brilliant. Uh, I don't have that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what I will do is come up with a more strategic approach, which is I'll sort of use, mix in a bit of old, bit of new, bit of old, bit of new, bit of old, bit of new. So mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the way I would do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting because for me, it's fascinating compare the differences. So in theory, if you could make this clean comparison, you have a task to do a Toastmaster speech from zero to full seven minutes or to do a full stand-up comedy set from zero to seven minutes. How long would it take it to you to prepare each of the assignments? If someone told you that you cannot use any of your old material for uh, the stand-up comedy set. Yeah, well, seven, the, the thing is, is the thing is with a speech is I can sit at home, write a speech, spend a couple of hours writing a speech and deliver it. And I'll be, I'll know it'll be, you know, reasonably good. You know, it won't be brilliant, but it'll be reasonably good. Okay. With a few hours. I, if I do the same process with comedy and spend a couple of hours and the first time I try it out, it probably won't be very good. And I'll then have to, you know, I'll analyze it. I'll look at it. How did it feel delivering the material? What was the response like? I video myself. I'll analyze it. Go, oh, what what feels good? What doesn't feel good? What what did I fluff? And then when we watch, you know, refine that and then uh, change the material, change jokes, change this, make them shorter, make them longer, pad them up, pad them down. Why aren't people laughing? Maybe the joke is not clean enough. Maybe it's not easy to understand or whatever, whatever the problem might be. Or maybe it's just not relevant or maybe it's just not very funny. And then you try it out a second time and a third time and a fourth time. So for, I would say for me, if you want to kind of quantify it, I would say I would probably take four or five goes like live rehearsals mm-hmm. to generate five minutes of comedy material. Okay. So four or five, that's four or five live rehearsals, but that's four or five live rehearsals with the analysis afterwards, refining it, what went, what was good, what was not good, what do I like, what do I not like? So in terms of the amount of time you can count that up, then it's like <laughs> the, the, the amount of time to create five minutes of comedy, for me anyway, is a lot greater than to create five minutes of a speech. Okay. But if you had to give a ballpark figure, like how long would it take you to do oh let's say a five minute set so would it be a two weeks or one month or how long it would depend how many venues i could get to between now and then so it would depend how much i could practice now the point is is also as well it's you know if i say you say i want five new minutes in in two weeks the thing is is could i get to i probably need four visits to a club so could i get four practices in now Am I better off with four practices in one week or four practices in four weeks? Uh, but, you know, you know, we can argue the toss on that, but I would probably need four practices in, say, two to four weeks at least, and then you might have a chance of getting five good minutes. Yeah, and for me, this is really interesting because in Toastmasters, we also want to keep improving ourselves, but it seems to me that compared to stand-up comedy where the feedback is immediate and it's very clear and you need to set the bar is set very high for success yeah in toastmasters it's not like that and therefore very often to happens especially to us more experienced toastmasters that it's not clear where is it that we should make progress next 
So my question is, and maybe you thought about it, maybe you have an idea, is there something that we can change to push ourselves to better performances, even in Toastmaster clubs? Yeah, I mean, you could do things like what perhaps one of the, the big differences would be is, can you do it in front of a live audience who's not to- who are not Toastmasters? Can you keep the attention? So, for example, so that's one of the differences because in a Toastmaster meeting, because we're all, most people in a Toastmaster meeting are participating. So we're giving a speech or giving feedback or we're involved in some shape or form. So we're not there purely as a spectator. We're, we're there as a participant. And for, for me, there's a very big difference between when you're a participant and when you're just a spectator. And so as a participant, it's much, much for me anyway, it's much more interesting. As a, partic- as a spectator, you know. And so what, how I came across this was if you bring your friends who are not Toastmasters and bring them to a Toastmaster meeting and they're, they're not they're just watching it as a, as a spectator, it may not be as interesting for them as it is for you because you're involved, okay? So that's kind of one of the, the tricks, if you like, of Toastmaster meetings is once you're involved, it becomes an experience, a growth experience, a learning experience, and a bit of adrenaline, a bit of this and a bit of that. And this is great. Now, how can we reverse that? Well, I, I would set the challenge and is you could take, let's take our Toastmaster on the, on the road. It doesn't have to go on the road, but go to a, a public venue and maybe do a storytelling night to, to, and, and sell tickets and see, can you sell tickets? and get an audience and get them, you know, it doesn't have to be very expensive, but can you get an audience and can you hold the audience attention? So for example, do you know Kumar? Yeah. Kumar was started with me on the, on the comedy journey. Now he's branched off into the storytelling and they do a storytelling here now before COVID once a month and they do it in one of the local pubs, they fill it up and they have people telling stories. So it's not quite Toastmasters, but a lot of the speakers are coming from Toastmasters. So then they have to, can they tell their stories or can they give their, their stories in such a way that they can hold the audience's attention? And this is, it's, it's a great way of, of improving your performance. A great way of, of tightening up your story. Is your story compelling? Is your speech compelling? So this is, for example, this would be one way of doing it. I mean, there's other ways. It's people I would recommend Toastmasters try to try comedy. When people, when I sometimes hear people in Toastmasters go, oh my goodness, I've given my 10 speeches, I've arrived. <laughs> I, I, I kind of smile to myself because I know from doing contests, I mean, you might have to give a speech four or five times before it starts to get, you know, even into pretty good shape. And that's four or five times with a lot of work. And it's, that's a similar journey to generating a, a comedy bit. It's, you, preparing it performing it four or five times but with a lot of work in between to try and refine it and you so if you're performing four or five times or maybe 10 times it might take you 10 times to get a bit right you know to get a set right it might take you 20 times and maybe 20 times you realize this thing is not actually working mm-hmm. maybe i need to let this go <laughs> yeah. but the the thing is is the number of stage times or stage time performance for me when i started doing comedy went up exponentially Mm-hmm. like compared to when I was do- just doing Toastmasters. I was, you know, giving a lot of speeches in Toastmasters and it was great. But let's say the, because people, let's say in the comedy world that maybe have a different perspective or whatever, people could be performing three, four, five times a week. And 
whereas in Toastmasters, we nearly delighted with ourselves if we give one speech a month or one speech every two months. <laughs> yeah. And whereas you have people there performing two, three, four, five times a week. Now, having said that, they're not necessarily doing new a new set five times a week, they, but they're working on the same set and refining it and adding a joke, taking a joke, adding a joke, taking out a joke, you know, and that type of thing. But it's so comedians who are focused are, are working much harder than let's say the average comedian who's yeah who's working hard is working much harder than the average toastmaster who's giving a speech a month and i can also see it's clearly a different approach right because in toastmasters you complete your project immediately you move on to the next project and there's the quite expectation that you're going to develop new material right away whereas instead in yes. stand-up it's actually the other way around it's like you just yes. have these five minutes of amorphous stuff that you're going to carve and shape into something sharp and beautiful over time and even if for one year five times a week you're just going to perform those five minutes and at the end you're going to have a brilliant five minutes and that's great Well, yeah, yeah, you, you would hope, you would hope, you know, five times a week, five, the same five minutes, you probably get bored of the five minutes, to be honest with you, you know, but, <laughs> but, you know, if you were doing five times a week, you would hope maybe you could yet develop maybe, you know, 30 minutes or 60 minutes of material, maybe if you were performing that much. Yeah, then you can do an HBO or Netflix comedy special. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but so, yeah, the, it would be the level of practice and the level of, of, of repetition and refining and stuff would be much higher than in a normal Toastmaster speeches. In Toastmaster speeches, you normally would see that when people are preparing for contests and then they'll, you know, they'll run around to different Toastmaster clubs and practice here, practice there and whatever. And you'll hear of people getting ready for a district and they might practice a speech five, 10, 15 times. And so that would be a kind of a comparable level of, of work as, as a comedian developing a new five or 10 minutes. So the advice for the experienced Toastmaster who feel they're signating would be okay so go for stand-up comedy get some speaking time in front of real audience yeah get speaking elsewhere get speaking elsewhere outside of toastmasters and so toastmasters is a great place to practice a great place to learn a great place to grow and to get you know constructive feedback and all that but that's great if that's and if that's all you want to do that's fantastic but if you want to stretch and grow to take it to the next level and do something that's you know interesting and exciting and a bit scary for you i mean whether it's doing a podcast or whether it's speaking at work whether it's speaking you know at you know at different venues around your town or city i mean just get speaking in as many different places as possible sometimes maybe you get paid for it most of the time you probably won't but it depends on what your focus is your focus on trying to make a career your focus you're trying to grow or maybe you can, you can do both So, but it's, it's to, to find those opportunities that are kind of interesting and exciting and, and scary for you and, and tend to embrace, embrace those. Great advice. There's one more topic I wanted to explore with you a little bit. And that is because you have rich experience developing your communication skills in Toastmasters as well as in comedy. How are you able to apply these skills in your real job? because you're not doing speaking or stand-up for a living, at least not yet, right? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. But while now you're still working as an IT consultant, and 
in your words, you're speaking more to a computer than to the customer. You're moving to a pre-sales role where your job will be to explain the possible benefits of new solutions to the customers and you will get much more speaking time or much more much more opportunities to utilize your communication skills and overall your speaking experience. It's combining it's combining the Toastmasters experience and the comedy experience and the technology experiences. Um, I'm really curious how is it including your comedy experience? Do you prepare But, jokes for your client presentations? Well, no, no, no it's, it's different to that. It's not about jokes. But what, what's different is, and this is perhaps a, a, a difference between Toastmasters and, and comedy, one, for me anyway, was a lot of, when you give a speech or you in, to a Toastmasters audience, you normally have a fairly attentive audience and they're well-behaved. Whereas in a comedy club, you're... You kind of there's a bit of crowd control that has to go on. So sometimes, yeah, the, sometimes the crowd are in great form. They're very attentive. There's no distractions, and and they're they're just you can they they're very attentive. And sometimes they're not. And sometimes they're tired. Sometimes the room is too hot. The room is too cold. They need to go to the toilet or or whatever. A, a drink spills. So you you kind of have to work harder at crowd control, and you have to work harder to get the attention of the audience. And so sometimes you might have a great story planned and you realize that this story is not working so you have to go in a different direction and so for example in toastmasters well for me anyway you have your plan you stay on the plan and that's it whereas in comedy you kind of have to be a bit more flexible or have to be more flexible and sometimes you have a plan sometimes you stay in it and sometimes you don't <laughs> sometimes you'll only do half the plan because the other half the time you're doing some form of crowd control or working the room to to, to build up the atmosphere because If the if the room is cold, you can have the best joke in the world. But if the room is cold, they won't laugh. So sometimes you might have to actually do a bit of work warming up the room, and then tell the joke. So this is this this is this re, re, reading the room. I'm really curious how you make this work in the professional context, because you're you're telling a story or you're making a point. Are they listening? Are they not listening? Are they understanding? Are they not understanding? So th there's no point in speaking for 10 minutes because they probably aren't listening. So you have to sort of say, so, hey, do you understand that? Is that clear? And they go, yes. They go, no. They go, well, what's not clear? What, you know, how can we make that clearer? So it's this kind of, and then sometimes they may take you in a different direction than you planned. Mm -hmm. And so that's the point. So you can go in and have your demo and you have a, you know, your 30 minutes, 60 minutes planned out and you want to go point, point, point. But on For that demo, the customer might have different concerns. They're saying, well, that's not relevant to us. We want to, actually what's important for us is this. And so suddenly you have to be prepared to sort of say, right, I wanted to go in direction A, but suddenly they want to go in direction B. So we stick with the plan and lose the deal or we go B and we have a chance of keeping the deal open. So it, it's that being checking in with the audience and are they with you? Or, or, or do you need to go in, do you need to go in a different direction and that's something that that confidence to be comfortable with like that i wouldn't have had that before i started doing comedy so you go in with a great plan and sometimes you do the plan sometimes you throw the plan overboard <laughs> so that's that kind of adapting to what's going on at the time that's a that's a big one for the professional context mm. and is it helpful because 
is the comedy experience helpful because you're used to situations getting unpredictable and you're used you're able to change direction or is it because you have some specific techniques that help you well there are some techniques as well but i mean the point is the first thing is just getting comfortable and then you try out the techniques and then you you then you realize hey wait this is just a case of getting used to this you know it's just dealing with a different context so if you're go from toastmasters into a pub to tell a, to tell a story it, it will feel very different because because you know people are in a pub and there's noise and there's background noise and there's people speaking or talking or maybe they aren't or maybe they, you know there's more distractions i know it's terrible i tried it once it was so <laughs> distracting all this noise in the pub i hated it <laughs> exactly like where's my silence i am speaking yeah yeah they're, they're not supportive it's not supportive audience Exactly, exactly. And so that's dealing with that and learning how to deal with that. That's, that's uh, it's a challenge. And so if the audience, if you have the audience attention or don't have the audience attention, it's, it's, it's trying to figure out and feel that and get a sense of that. The very last thing I wanted to briefly ask you about is because all these creative efforts, those master speeches, stand-up comedy, I think that writing a book is, at least in my eyes, the most complex or the biggest task because you know it's a lot of material so i imagine i imagine there are many people in toastmasters who after some time start thinking of oh i might want to write a book someday would it be so cool to write a book but actually to really get to it and sit down and do it that's really challenging from your experience you've written two books already do you have any piece of advice for anyone who's considering it? Yeah, yeah. If, if, if it's something you really want to do, do it. And a lot of people I know, a lot of people I know, I know many people who've said they will start on books, who will write a book. And what they do is they start on the first chapter, second chapter, and third chapter, and then they kind of, they stop. <laughs> and I find it sort of disappointing for mm -hmm. them i mean it's their obviously their problem but i find no. i no. well i mean it's a shame they have these great ideas and great dream to write this book and they they think uh and then they stop and they, they don't realize that dream of actually finishing their book and it's it, it's a kind of a thing it's it's i suppose it's a little bit like giving speeches at toastmasters you know if you, if you give a speech people think oh my speech has to be amazing it has to be perfect if it's not perfect there's no point in giving a speech and I don't really buy into that. I would say it, it depends. You're probably better off if your speech is, you know, say it's only 50% as good as you want it to be. You're still better off giving that speech than not giving the speech because by practicing it and 50%, it might improve to 60% or 70%. You can take the feedback, take the practice you've done and maybe it improves to 70 or 80%. But this thing about having this perfect speech is an illusion. I, I feel it's a dangerous illusion because if people are waiting for that perfect speech to come, what it means it, it they're not there practicing. Mm -hmm. And this I've seen this a couple of times, Toastmasters, people who are waiting for that perfect speech. And because they're waiting for that perfect speech, they end up waiting two, three, five years to give that next speech. Yeah. Whereas they could be, you know, giving lots of speeches in between and getting lots of stage time and lots of speech practice, speech writing practice, speech feedback practice, and all that, and developing the skill of of speaking. Okay. So 
what I mean, what I'm saying with that is, is that people sometimes, whether it's a book or a speech or whatever, they're, they're aiming for perfection and perfection is great, but I, I believe perfection is an illusion. And it's better to, to start, get a book if you, and do deliver something and, and finish it. And, you know, it may not be very good, but then you can get help. You can get help from but there's people out there that can help you to improve your book. You can get beta reviewers, you get reviewers, you can get editors, you can get copy editors, you can all there's people out there that can help you improve your final product. But and then then I would say get that product out. Now that's my approach to it. Get something out that's good or you know good enough. Uh, you know, <laughs> rather than sitting on that that idea of a book that you, you might be sitting on that book for 20 years and, and never, you know, maybe you go to the grave without ever releasing that book. Now, how do, you, how do you get to it? How do you get yourself to do it? Is it that you use a deadline? I have an yeah, idea. Yeah, I did two different approaches. One, I did deadlines. The first one, I did deadlines. And the second one, I didn't use deadlines. And so... But how did you do this? Because if I give myself deadlines, well, then I break the deadline and I forgive yeah, myself. Yeah, well, I... Deadlines, not deadlines. I think it depends what motivates you. As I say, I, I first book I did it one way, and the other book I didn't do it that way. And I, I think it depends what what works for you. And some people might say set a goal of you know, okay, I want to you know, let's say I want to do this in six months, for example. And then you need to work backwards. If I want to do this in six months, then it's well, how much you know, how many words do I need to produce? And how many words do I need to produce? And maybe I need to produce that in six months and how many is that per week, per day, per month, whatever. But the thing is then is once you've produced your words, again, it goes back to Toastmasters. Are you willing to take feedback on your words? And again, people I know who are trying to write books, I say to them, why don't you get your books reviewed? And they're like, no, 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 I couldn't do that. And I'm like, you see, and I'm like, well, no, you should send your book for reviewers. And there's reviewers out there that can will do your book and it's not very expensive, okay? This is before you even go to an editor. They're called beta readers. And they'll review your book and they'll tear it to shreds and tell you what's good and bad and indifferent. <laughs> and that that process, if you can incorporate their feedback, some of it's good, some of it's relevant, some of it may not, you may not appreciate some of their feedback and that's fine. But if you're willing to go through that process, incorporate the feedback and, and again, you know, improve the product and be open. So it's, it's that principle of taking the feedback. So we, we learned this in Toastmasters, take the feedback and absorb it and see how much of it you can incorporate. And it's the same with, for me anyway, writing a book is, is, you know, produce the material, then get it reviewed and get it reviewed as much and as hard as you can uh, by as many people and, and, and try and use that to, to create a better product. So that's that's what I would say is is try and make sure to finish the project <laughs> because there's many people I know who yeah who, who start books but won't finish because either they don't have they're they're chasing perfection or they're they don't not realizing that well perfection probably won't ever come you know mm -hmm. and anyway if you look at any of the big authors big authors who become superstar authors many of them have published many books before they've even started before they one of the books became really big a big hit you know there's very few of them who their first book is a big hit well your book top tips for dating disasters in germany is definitely not your first book so it's already second so it's already confirmed you're already confirmed as stellar author now <laughs> Stellar, stellar twice. I like that. Thank you. 
Is there something, as we are closing this interview, that you would like to share with listeners? Any final message? And also, where is it that uh, our listeners can find you? It can be physical location, but it can also be, you know, some online place, how they can connect with you. Yeah, they can find me online on, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Find me on my website, Smellkali. I will put the links. There are a couple of websites there. We'll put the links in, in the, the show notes. And uh, yeah, buy my book. This is the best-selling book of the year. The best-selling book of the year. You don't want to miss out on that, you know. And as some, one guy told me, he said he bought it. He bought it for his wife. And his wife read it. And he said it, he read it. His wife read it. And his wife loves him even more because she realizes all the mistakes he's making, he's still not as bad and making as many mistakes as I did in the book. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Mel, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you here. Great, Lucas. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, an honor, and I, I hope you enjoy the rest of the afternoon and the rest of the day. If our today's conversation made you think, great. If it made you consider taking action, even better here's a small thing you can do think of an opportunity where you will be able to speak to a tough crowd it can be stand-up comedy it can be a storyteller's night it can be a business or personal development conference start working on your material in advance you can keep your toastmasters club involved it's a great place to test your material and get feedback then incorporate it so that when you get in front of a tough crowd you'll be prepared in the next episode, I'll be talking to Daniel Sully Sullivan, a distinguished Toastmaster from Florida who supports corporations in implementing Agile as a Scrum coach. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or other podcasting platforms. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do that via Twitter using Toastwild or using the links in the podcast description. Keep speaking and talk to you next time.